Hey, everybody. I'm John Small. And I'm Dan Bova. And from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money. Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty. Well, hey, Dan. Hey, John. How are you? I am good. It is good to see you again, as always. Yes, and and you might you might be detecting a certain lift in my voice, and that's because John. Usually, we talk about pretty awful things on this show, but I've yeah. got some good news. Wait, what is it? What 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 could you possibly have found out that's positive? Well, depending how you feel about serial killers, I think this is good news. Uh, So there is a study at uh, Northeastern University that says serial killers are on the decline. There are less serial killers now than there have been in decades. Much less. That is very interesting. Yeah. Do they know why? Well, the, so so there's a bunch of reasons, and it was published by a man named James Allen Fox, Jack Levin, and Emma Friedel. It's called Extreme Killing, Understanding, Serial, and Mass Murder. Great bedtime reading. I totally suggest it. Um, but, um, but yeah, they broke it down. Uh, I'm looking at this chart. So in the 1970s, the FBI said there was 286 active serial killers which is like crazy that's nuts that was like the golden era of of serial killer a lot of people don't know um but now they're saying uh in this era you know we're we've got about 42 out there hmm that's a huge decline it's still a lot if you when you think about it but but a lot less so so that's nice and you know, one of the things that they said was, you know, which I guess is kind of obvious, but, you know, police detective work is just it's just gotten a lot better. Like forensic science and technology has just really made it harder and harder for for serial killers to stay serial killers. You know, they get caught. Yeah, I would imagine like DNA, like all these people that were serial killers, like the Golden State Killer got you know, nabbed a few years ago just through his DNA. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it used to be, you know, you, you, you buried your victim, you threw him in a river, you did whatever. And you know, that was it. No one had any clue because you didn't leave your driver's license there. But now it's like, you know, they're scraping on the fingernails. They're finding all this, you know, a single strand of hair, like all this kind of stuff. So I thought that was good news that I would share with you. Yeah, I guess my my big takeaway from this is that if you are considering a career in serial killing, it might not be the right time. Exactly. I would say don't become a serial killer and don't become a journalist. Both are very declining industries. <laughs> that is for sure. We we know both of these things firsthand. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting. I, I And I don't have the statistic in front of me, but I would imagine... While serial killing is declining, the number of scams uh, and sort of dirty white collar crimes is probably on the rise for the very same reason that serial killing is on the decline and that technology uh, has enabled um, people to to scam a lot more easily, I think, than back in the old days at, at, a, at a greater scale. 
I would, I would agree. I mean, I, I don't have the, uh, any data in front of me to say that, but just the amount of phishing texts I get on a daily basis, you know, just the ease of setting something up that looks legitimate on the internet, just in minutes, you could set something up and where back in the day, you'd have to like lure people to an event and do this and do that. Like, it just seems so easy to, to set up a uh, false, false companies. Right. And to do it at such a huge scale, right? It's easy and to do it at a, and to get, and to get to so many people. I and mean, back in the snake oil salesman days, you had to go to a town, you know, you get the people in the town to maybe yeah. buy your snake oil. Now you put it on the internet and, you know, you have, or through a, a you could, do a bot and get, you know, thousand millions yeah, of yeah. queries out there. Uh, uh, Somebody's yeah, going to bite. Yeah. It's just a numbers game. Yeah. Oh, man. So I see you're killing down white collar crime up. Great. What a world we live in. What a wonderful world. What a world. What a world. So, you know, today's today's guest, you know, is going to talk a little bit about the uh, the latter, uh, the white collar crime, but more specifically, more good news, I guess which is uh, he's written a book about, you know, what to do about it. Because, you know, I don't know how you feel, um, but, well, I mean, I know how you feel about chocolate chip cookies. You, as I love them. I adore but, them. Um, but, you know, on this show, we we talk about all these different scams, some from the present, some from the past. You know, we always have sympathy for anyone who's fallen victim to a financial crime. It's, uh, you know, devastating uh, on, on many different levels. But, uh, you know, as bad as we feel, there's sort of always something in the back of your head that you're like, man, this sounds so crazy. Like, how did anyone fall for that? Why would someone do that? Why would someone put all their money on that? And it, it's easy to sit back and uh, and have the big picture and say like, oh, well, I'm too smart for that. I would never, I would never have done that. But as, the more we do this show, I realize that thinking that way, that you're impervious to this kind of thing, probably makes you even more vulnerable to this kind of thing. It's a dangerous mindset to have. Yeah. And that is what our guest sort of specializes in. His name is Christopher Chabri. He is a psychologist and he's written this book, this really great book, um, along with his uh, colleague, Daniel Simons. It's called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. And basically, it looks at the various techniques that scammers use to lure their victims, you know, really taking advantage of, of the basic cognitive you know, habits and biases that we have as humans and using those to their advantage. So not only does it look at how scammers work and how they kind of manipulate us, but it also takes a look at how we can protect ourselves against scammers. So it's not only bad news. We're talking about the red flags to look for when you're being scammed. Yeah, it, uh, it's a fascinating book. It's a helpful book. And uh, we're, we're super thrilled that uh, Christopher was able to join us. So, um, Well, we're, we think he's Christopher. We think we think it's Christopher. We're not sure if it was act if it's actually going to be Christopher. Well, someone either it's Christopher or someone purporting to be Christopher. Christopher <laughs> Chevry, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, great to talk to you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, I'm hoping you could uh, answer a lot of questions that have come up for for us 
and our listeners uh, over over the past episodes. You know, we always we tend to focus on the bad guys and maybe try to think like, why did they even do that? Blah blah blah. And we always feel sympathy for the victims, but I always feel like there's this thing in the back of our head that we're like, well, I would never fall for that. So uh, you've written a whole book about this phenomenon. So why do we fall for that, even though we think there's no way on earth I would ever fall for that? Uh, I think there's several reasons for that. One is that when we hear a story about a scam that's been investigated and uncovered and even prosecuted, charged and prosecuted and so on, we're, we're seeing all the events in hindsight. And the narration of the story, inevitably, because this is the way stories work, you know, will highlight various things that maybe the victim could have or should have noticed along the way, but somehow didn't or somehow convinced themselves they were seeing something else or rationalized it or whatever. And it's hard to go back and imagine yourself sort of in the position of the ultimate victim, but given only what they knew and what they were hearing and, and what they saw at the time. And um, so there's a bit of a sort of a hindsight bias going going into it. And it's easy to see in, in, in light of that bias that, you know, you would not have made that mistake since you know there's a scam involved. But when you're in the middle of an interaction, it is not that easy to, to, to tell that you're being scammed. And, and sometimes that's just because you don't have the outside view. Like you often need an independent view and better to get that from someone at the time rather than wait for the podcast to come out that shows that, you know, that shows what happened to you. So one, one of the bits of advice we give and many bits of advice we give is, is to actually ask someone else if you're being scammed or conned, because there are many cases where other people have seen what was going on at the time mm. and told people like, you know, get out of this thing. Like you're, you know, and, and sometimes that advice works, sometimes it doesn't, but if you don't get that advice, it can't work. Yeah. It helps to have the outside perspective. It's hard sometimes to see it when you're in the middle of it. I actually was conned. Um, I've mentioned this a few times. I was conned, uh, kind of like a Bernie Madoff type of scheme that my wife and I fell into when we first got married. Nice, nice way to to start a marriage. Uh, a guy that we, a guy that we really trusted and that we thought um, was a was a financial wizard, and and we fell into this Ponzi scheme. Thankfully, we didn't lose. A lot of money, but a lot of our friends lost a tremendous amount of money. John, so, John I apologize many times for that. I'm sorry. I just, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, we always thought it was fishy, especially when you sort of dis the, the guy disappeared for six months. But then somebody started a website saying, have you seen this man? And it was like, and we got forwarded the link and it was all like, you know, he stole my money. And we didn't realize that all these different people had been conned. And so it wasn't until the sort of community got together and start, you know, of, of the secret you know, all his sort of secret dealings got together and said, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm owed a lot of money that we knew that there was something up. But I think everybody else was sort of self-deceiving themselves and thinking, uh, this is a great thing I'm involved in, except there's something a little bit weird going on because the guy who was lend who's um, doing this this um, fund for us has, has left the country and we haven't gotten <laughs> word from him. So yeah. So there was something about the power and numbers of, of a group of people sort of rising up and saying, this is fishy. But it's also interesting in your story that it took a while that they had, had been mm -hmm. gone for a while before everybody sort of got together and realized this, like your investment advisor is never supposed to disappear for like longer right. than yeah, like one business so day or something like that. Right. Maybe. Or they're supposed to tell you in advance or they're supposed to leave an appropriate out of office message. So like this, I think, shows one of the things about about scams, which is that we sort of go into them without considering the possibility that we're being scammed. Like that's just not something we consider in everyday life. 
And probably you weren't right. considering that this financial advisor was a con artist. And and the fact that you sort of had we would we would say we would say sort of you had a commitment to the idea that this guy was not a con artist. You know, you didn't ask that question when you went in. And probably that slowed down the reasoning process in a way that might have led you earlier to say, wait a minute, how this guy's been gone for this has been gone for a couple of weeks. Like that is not normal. Like, let me really dig into what's going on. I don't know exactly how long it took you, but when you said six months, like that made me think that, you know, yeah. it, it, there it was, was probably a, like, yeah, it, probably less, but still like there was something, you know, you say that there's, there's certain sort of instincts that we have as humans, cognitive habits, you call them, right? Cognitive shortcuts yep. that serve us well, like in n- normal everyday life, but also make us quite vulnerable to being deceived. And I, and I think like what you're saying here is that one of the things that you say in the book that I think is really relevant here is that we always we 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 often assume that people are telling the truth, right? Like that's just kind of like a human thing. Like when people tell us something, like we just don't like assume they're lying unless they're it's really obvious they're lying. So especially if it's a friend, and this was a friend, this wasn't just a guy. This was like a friend of ours that we socialized with. So let's talk about the different sort of cognitive sort of habits that we have as 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 humans. But how they can make us, which would serve us well in like everyday life, but can make us very vulnerable to bad guys. Yeah, let's start with truth bias. So truth bias, I think you sort of alluded to like that is the it's on the one hand obvious, but on the other hand, it's so obvious that we don't even realize we have it and how important it is. So truth bias is simply the idea that we our brains are designed, you know, so to speak to by default assume that everything we're being told is true. And meaning it, it it's not like we can't disbelieve things or we can't treat things as false, but it just takes a little extra effort to do that. Um, and that's not the way information is first marked, let's say, when it comes into the brain, right? So if you sort of take this theory very seriously, like a completely outlandish statement, like, you know, there are purple dinosaurs living on the moon planning an invasion of the earth. Um, the first time you hear that, you may actually sort of start to visualize it and maybe like, you know, in order to, the idea is like, in order to even understand what that sentence means, you need to sort of visualize it and, and accept it as as true, at least temporarily. Now, of course, we're here talking about it and we all realize it's not true. And you probably think about it a little more and you're like, of course, that's not true. Or at very best, we have no evidence for that. Um, but let's say you're in a hurry or you have other reasons to believe who you're talking to or you're distracted or something interrupts your you know, process of, of checking and thinking twice and so on. And then maybe you hear it a couple more times, like eh, you might start to attach more truth to it. I've had the experience myself of, of hearing things more than once and sort of stopping to think, well, wait a minute, maybe that is really true, even though it's sort of you know outlandish. So the idea of truth bias is sort of like a, a precondition uh, you, there needs to be a truth bias for cons to work. If if everybody didn't believe anything they heard, well, there would be no scams. But on the other hand, there would be sort of like no business. There would be no commerce. There would be no marriages. There would be, no, you know, so, so in a way, this gets at your point, like they normally serve us well. Like we have to have a truth bias in order just to interact with other people and, and you know, live life. Um, and if we didn't, then, you know, that wouldn't work. Um uh, but it leaves us open. You know, it leaves us a bit open to people who can exploit that. Um, so that's the very first of these sort of, I, I would say, cognitive habits we talk about um, is truth bias. Hi, I'm Robert Tuckman, and I host Entrepreneurs How Success Happens podcast. Each show, I get to interview a successful entrepreneur. 
Many have built some of the biggest brands in the world, like Lululemon, Warby Parker, Patron, and Drybar. But here is the part I love, because after doing hundreds of episodes, I've noticed regardless of one's success, we rarely get to hear about all of the challenges they faced and overcame to get there. They all had to pick themselves up off the mat at one time or another. I love hearing their stories and how these people we find incredibly successful today are really just like you and me. They all faced difficulties, but they all kept going and got through them. On How Success Happens, we dive deep to find out how they overcame these issues and what was it that drove each of them to keep going and never quit. Because let me tell you, they all face difficult times. It's a great podcast if you want to learn from the best while inspiring yourself. I'd, I'd love to hear you know, your, your financial advisor disappearing for six months, uh, you know, that's a red flag, as you said, I feel like maybe, maybe we should just, uh, do step back for a second. So, so tell us about why you wrote this book. You know, you you and your co-author wrote this book, like how did you do it? How did you research it? And, and was there a personal inspiration for it? How did it come about? Well, we wrote, uh, we published a book about uh, 12 or 13 years ago called The Invisible Gorilla, which was about um, how our sort of cognitive powers are limited. We're not as good as we think we are at paying attention and noticing things, remembering things accurately, understanding our own skills and, 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 uh, and knowledge, and, and what the implications of those, uh, of those facts are. And we wanted to do another book kind of along the same lines, but in a bit more positive vein, basically saying like, here are some tools you can use to make better decisions and overcome your own limitations, or at least not get, you know, not get hurt by them. And it took us a while to really realize that the right way of thinking about those things was in the context of when other people are trying to take advantage of us, because when other people are trying to take advantage of us, scammers, con artists, even you, you could say marketers and advertisers, politicians who are trying to convince us of things we might not want to believe, fake news and so on. There's a whole you know, array of these situations. That's when we really need to be most aware of how our own minds are working and what our mental habits are that these guys, you know, and after all, they are usually guys, um, are trying to exploit in us. So that really gave us like a structure to think about, um, to think about how to give people some positive advice on what they could do to make better decisions. And that, that the, the time, the, the most important time to make a better decision is when you might be on the verge of making a terrible decision, <laughs> you know, like giving all your money to Bernie Madoff or something like that. Right. Um, uh, or let's say, you know, voting for the wrong presidential candidate or something like that, because you got taken in by, by their story, you know, and their, um, and their claims or something like that. So we, you know, we wrote both of our books together. We trade back and forth drafts and ideas and so on all the time. Actually, we meet like, you know, on, on Zoom and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and work together uh, that way. And we had really been accumulating ideas and uh, material and stories for a long time. But also, you know, there wasn't like, it's, it's not like one of us was scammed and then the light bulb went on and we said, let's do a book about that. But it just became... It, it it sort of became apparent that that 
scams and fraud seem to be on the rise in a number of ways. And probably the internet enables a lot more scams than, you know, the US mail and the telephone used to and so on. That's part of it. Part of it was during COVID. I think people were sort of more scammable with more time on their hands and and maybe a little bit more emotional need to, you know, to to, to try to uh, believe things um, that they they shouldn't have believed. Um, But also even in the business world, we, we noticed that business practices seem to be evolving to the point where things that formerly were considered deceptive or at least illegitimate or not done by good companies um, are more acceptable. Uh, Insider trading seems to become sort of more a matter of how do we make it plausibly deniable um, than how do we make sure we never do it. Um, Customer service is like more about like keeping you as a customer no matter what, rather than letting you cancel your account, you know, obviously not everybody's like this, but it just seemed to us that there, it was the time was right, you know, to sort of get into this. And then as, as we said earlier, the other, the other point was um, there are so many really absorbing and interesting and entertaining and, and, and um, educational stories about, famous and less well-known fraudsters, con artists, and so on, as, as you and your audience knows very well. But not so much of that tells us, how did these guys get away with it? And what could you know we do to not you know, be victims in the future? Because the focus, as you say, is, is so much on these fascinating characters, you know, who get away with this stuff and, and the poor, the unfortunate people who, you know, who they, who they take advantage of. And, and um, uh, so we thought there was really like a good confluence of, of reasons for a book like this. In a way, the scam continues uh, because it's like even after they're caught, we're still fascinated with them. We'll watch movies about them. We'll consume their content. It's like it doesn't matter uh, that they got caught. It's like we're more interested in the actual scam than than than, you know, that justice was done. Although I will uh, admit that I think people generally like to watch or listen to content that is about the person ultimately getting caught. There's something sort of more satisfying about that than, you know, one of these cases that's still open and like people are still getting scammed. Like that's, I think, harder for us to digest. Well, if it's still open and people are still getting scammed, like we don't necessarily know that the scam is even real, right? Until like the investigation is is over and we've got the, you know, the perpetrators, like, you know, it's hard to know how it, how it even worked and that it was a scam. Um, But I know I I agree. Like those characters are, absorbing. And it's good to pay attention to them because a lot of times they'll do it again. Uh, You know, there are like art forgers who like were caught, they went to jail, they got out of jail, they did it again. They were caught, they went to jail, they got out of jail, they did it again. And, uh, you know, there's the the fire festival guy and, you know, um, and and, and so on. I mean, there's many examples, right? Of of, uh, You got to do what you love, Chris, you know, (laughs) or what you're good at, at least, right? You know, like, I mean, right. How else can you make money? This is your profession, right? You know, yeah. So, yeah. I wonder, um, you know, why don't we, if if you could, sort of break down some of the the more f- readier red flags uh, that we all should be asking ourselves. And then what I'd love to know, too, is when a red flag pops up, like, what do you do? You know, you're sort of halfway, you got one foot in the door already. So how do you extricate yourself? Can you? Uh, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on all that. Well, I think obviously step one is becoming aware of what these common uh, habits are that um, lead us to miss what might be really going on in a case of deception and what some of the hooks are that um, deceivers, fraudsters use to attract us in the first place. So um, uh, I think a good place to start with sort of these habits is um, 
with the idea of expectations and predictions. So one of the ways our minds work is we are sort of constantly making predictions about what is going to happen next, what someone's going to say next. In fact, some people argue that one of the reasons why we're able to communicate so quickly with language and back and forth so rapidly at this rapid pace is that most of what we say is actually kind of expected. So it's easier to process you know, language and social interactions and so on, because people most of the time do what's expected and it's sort of easy to predict what's going to happen. And when something happens that we don't expect, that's called surprise, right? We have an emotion for that. We have a facial expression. We have a mental state. We're surprised. That's not what we expected. So what a good scammer will do is they will do what their victims expect. They will give them what mm-hmm. their victims have predicted is going to happen or what they're, they have predicted they're going to see. And I don't mean explicitly predicted, like stated out loud, like a psychic or something, just what sort of we're unconsciously, you know, expecting yeah. um, all the time. So, you know, a, a good, a great example of that, that um, at least that resonates a lot for, for me and Dan is science fraud. So it might surprise people to know that there's a lot of fraud in science because we normally think about scientists as being, you know, well, smart people, not to toot my own horn, but the stereotype, at least, yeah. that scientists are intelligent, that they're critical thinkers, that they're careful, you know, that they're interested in the truth, <laughs> you know, they're objective, all these nice traits that like we wish people had. But it turns out that scientists are human beings and they have a lot of the same vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and biases. So science fraudsters manage to publish uh, scientific articles. Um, that look just like legitimate scientific articles. They get into really good mm-hmm. scientific journals, you know, journals that I would love to be published in more often and so on. There have been completely fabricated, you know, papers where wow. no experiments were ever done, no data were ever, you know, generated, but it were just made up. Um, like yeah. some guy did it over the weekend at home, you know, and came back Monday morning and handed it to the people in his lab and said, here's the data from our latest experiment. You guys analyze it and, and, and write it up. Um, well, why does that work? It's not because the fraudulent data claims to have discovered like a new planet, you know, closer than Mars. It's because it it it, it supports the an idea which is sort of exactly what other scientists would think is going to be the next thing that gets discovered or the next, you know, experiment that's done or an experiment they thought, you know, that's cool, but it's not earth shattering. You know, so you can get dozens and dozens and dozens of fake papers into the scientific literature by giving your colleagues what they expect. If you're really good at it, you know, if you're good at confecting these things, right. you can get away with that for a long time. A lot of these guys have been caught, but there are probably some that are still out there, you know, doing this right. stuff who haven't been been caught yet. And um, the number one thing they're doing is satisfying their colleagues' expectations as opposed to violating them and t- giving them something totally surprising, which would actually raise the alarms. So a red flag. So when, you know, so the, 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 the way we turn that into a piece of advice is to think about, um, you know, there's not going to be red flags out there all the time, but when you find yourself in a situation, um, where everything is, you know, exactly satisfying your expectations, you might want to consider is someone feeding me this information because they know it's what I expect to see. Um, as opposed to is also that is this yeah. just totally legitimate, right? Like just to think about you know the possibility that this is you know there's something surprising about the fact that everything is unsurprising, you know. It's also that kind of that too good to be true idea. Like um, sometimes when you're being scammed, I know this happened in my case. I started thinking, is this too? It's like we were making such a good return on our investment. I was almost wondering, is this too good to be true? Like. Like, because there's no such thing as too good to be true, right? Um, usually, <laughs> in most cases, um, if it's uh, it, so, is that something that that is a kind of 
something that you could sort of rely on your own instincts. Like this, this almost seems too good. Like I don't know. Well, I think if you if you have that instinct, you should follow it up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. But it's it's not like because there, that probably is telling you something. Like it could be that you are thinking. Maybe it's based on expectations, right? Like, well, this is I'm, everything is happening so perfectly. Like, what is what is going on with that? Or it might be based on another idea we talk about, which is this notion of um, potency. So, mm-hmm. you know, often, uh, you know, con artists, especially when they're sort of offering fake products for sale or fake something for sale, or they're trying to promote something fake, they will. Um, make it seem as though this thing is much more powerful than anything else like it, or especially than anything like it really ought to be. So, you know, there are some super powerful products that have been invented. Um, New world changing technologies are kind of like this, like, wait a minute, you mean like I can get pictures on my computer screen and I can talk to these guys, like even though they're like across the country or the world and we're doing it in real time, that is world changing technology. Doesn't come along every, you know, doesn't come along every day. Once in a generation, often we get these changes. Antibiotics, like save your life and you live for decades afterwards instead of you die. You know, like, wow, that is great. But but what's the likelihood that the guy who's trying to sell you, you know, something has really invented something like that? Like the original snake oil, right? Those were like these these things which would cure like 40 different diseases. Like there are no drugs that cure 40 different diseases all by themselves that you can buy like out of an advertisement. You know, those things just don't exist. So you could say those are too good to be true. In our framework, we would say they are too potent, meaning for, for what they are, they, they you know, we should be extremely skeptical that they can possibly achieve all that. And, and this happens in other areas too, like a new change to the curriculum is going to make, you know, all the students like learn much faster or something like that, or a new technology in education is going to, you know, education has been going on for millennia. You know, it's not going to suddenly like ch- turn right. on a dime tomorrow. I, I would say AI is generative AI is probably being oversold right now, you know, in, in the same way. It's really cool. It does a lot of cool things. I hope so. Yeah. Is it, <laughs> is it really <laughs> going to, maybe it is, maybe it will be like the next internet. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, we should be, we should be worried that maybe we're like being, you know, like maybe we should think, you know, like uh, what, what's, what's, you know, or, or because whenever these things happen, right. You do get like a lot of these overclaims mixed in with like more legitimate, you know, talk about it. So that that was going to be my my follow question, which is that, you know, so this this podcast is on uh, the entrepreneur media network. Entrepreneurs are out there trying to invent that thing that's going to change the world. So, um, you know, do you have recommendations for, you know, whether you're an investor or just someone who's like interested in this in trying to do these kinds of things? It's like, you know, none of us wants to be the guy who's like, what's this? Apple company you speak of, I'm not going to invest in that, you know, like, so like, he wants to miss it. Yeah. How do you, uh, how do you sort of vet like, all right, this actually does seem legit versus the snake oil sales. Right. Well, I'm thinking of Theranos is such a good example of that. Right. Whereas you had all these very impressive people investing in this technology uh, that, that was BS. Or is it just these guys are, you know, ready to take a risk on something? Maybe it's BS, whatever. I've got a lot of money. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Well, uh, you, I think, alluded it, alluded to it earlier uh, about the Ponzi schemer. Like, you didn't give them all your money. That's for step one, right? Is, mm-hmm. um, you know, do some, a- adopt some schemes 
and I say scheme in a positive sense here, but some some systems for yourself that limit your downside, right? So obviously a diversified portfolio is, is one of those, right? You are not necessarily a venture capitalist. Um, and even venture capitalists have very diversified portfolios. That's the whole thing, right? They try to have like a couple of really great successes to balance out all the times that they're, they're wrong. Um, I'm not sure if they're explicitly accounting for fraud, but in sort of making the calculation that often they will be wrong, they're probably accounting for the idea that Entrepreneurs will, you know, sometimes exaggerate, you know, or overclaim, you know, uh, their successes, their achievements, how far along they are, what the market is going to be, you know, and so on. So first, limit your risk, which involves a recognition that you will probably inevitably be, you know, taken advantage of at some point. Um, so that that's that's number one. Um, I, I think um, uh, number two is. Uh, I mean, number two in no particular order is uh, think about how much expertise you really have to evaluate some of these things. I think um, if we look at the Theranos case, um, people often say, and it's true, that there were a lot of important people who invested in Theranos and were on the board of Theranos. But it's less often said, although it is said, that none of those people were experts in health technology or biotechnology or right. um I'm not sure any of them were even MDs now that I think about it. I think maybe one of them was. I think um, one of the senators um, was was an MD, but I believe he was a heart surgeon, which you know doesn't necessarily give you expertise in miniaturizing blood testing, right? So expertise is actually a lot more specific than we realize as well. Um, there, there's this whole genre of ads that follows me around on the internet and on apps where it says like, you know, heart surgeon begs begs you to do this every day to empty your bowels or something like that. Like, why should I listen to a heart surgeon when it's about digestive health? It's right on the surface of it there. Like heart surgeons, they're smart people, but you know, yeah. there's, there's, you know, but why you like, I'll listen to like, you know, someone who knows more about that. So the fact that, you know, um, someone like Rupert Murdoch or George Schultz or Henry Kissinger is on the board of a company. Um, some investors would even say those are red flags. Um, so yeah. we, you know, investors who specialize in short selling will say things like, you have to watch out for a company that puts a lot of politicians and generals on the board because that means that they couldn't get like other CEOs or wow. you know venture capitalists who specialize in that sector or something like that. So instead, they got people who um, you know don't have the expertise um, yeah. and mm -hmm. are maybe just sort of trying to you know make money now that they're no longer in you know getting you know uh, no longer in public service. Maybe they had a great career, they served the public well, but. Now they need to make money, and here's an opportunity that they, you know, that they had. Um, so uh, I think there, there, in a sense, there were some red flags um, yeah. that were interpreted as green flags, or you know, or, or whatever the good kind of flag is, you know, by by Theranos investors. So I think you know, be careful about your own expertise and the expertise of others. Like pe even people who vouch for things, you've got to say, well, like how how do they really know? Um, and I guess another one is, um, you know, the third one I would say is like ask some really tough questions. Um, also sticking with the Theranos example, which is so good because it sort of it, it involves every possible thing that we talk about in our book. Um, mm -hmm. There were, you know, I would say, you know, very few of the people who did invest in Theranos asked tough questions. And Theranos management was sort of expert at deflecting and stonewalling tough questions or at actually giving misleading answers. So they mm -hmm. would think, say things like, our technology has been comprehensively validated by you know, nine major pharmaceutical companies, whatever the number is, I don't have that number exactly right. Well, then you have to say, what does comprehensively validated mean? What does the word mm -hmm. validated even mean in this context? What does comprehensively mean? 
who are these companies? Can I talk to the people at these companies? You know, even in their demos, as we know that they would do for, you know, visiting dignitaries and so on, they would they would put a blood sample into the machine and and run a special mode that made it whir and buzz as though it were actually doing something. And then they would take it out and, and take it someplace else. So imagine yourself in that situation. And like, there's other important people there. You don't want to look like the idiot. Would you say, excuse me, did that machine really just analyze that blood sample right now? And if so, like, can I have the results right, right now? Or is it just running? Like, is it just making sounds? Like, is that even a question you would think to ask? Well, you Sadly, we need to think to ask these questions and, and, yeah. and, you know, a lot of situations. Um, I think that's that's such a great point you've made about. So we had a previous guest on who was a victim in a uh, cryptocurrency scam. And she was basically begging our audience, anyone who listened, if you don't know what if you don't know about cryptocurrency and blockchain and how it works like really not not that you sort of know what it is but that you know how it works do not invest in it because you won't know how to ask the questions that'll illuminate whether it's a scam or not i totally and crypto is one of the best examples of this because you know some would argue um and some do argue that the entire concept is almost fraudulent um, other right. people argue that it's the future of banking and finance and government and, right. you know, all of this. Um, how much does any one individual really understand that differ- to differentiate between those things? Maybe someone should publish like a, a self-test. Like, and if you if you get, you know, 90 yeah. percent of these questions right, you know, um, without asking chat GPT or something like that, you know, then yeah. um, you are allowed to in- invest in crypto. And and indeed, there, there sort of are breaker mechanisms like that in the rest of finance. Like you can't invest in hedge funds without being an accredited investor, right? And having a certain levels of, of uh, wealth or experience in the industry or something like that, right? But unregulated situations like crypto with all these offshore companies, you know, don't sort of have those protections built in. And plus they have another hook going for them, which is um, a ton of celebrity endorsement um, which mm-hmm. is which exploits what we would call the hook of familiarity, basically getting people and institutions and things you're already familiar with to be that, that the victims are already familiar with to be transmitting the information to them. Right. When Steph Curry is like in Larry David or well, Larry David was on an ironic commercial for FTX where like <laughs> ironically, Larry David kept on dismissing crypto. You right, know, the right. commercial said, don't be like Larry. Well, it turns out Larry was right, um, <laughs> right. Uh, or at least with respect to FTX. Um uh, but you've got Tom Brady, you've got these celebrities, you know, and, and, and they associated themselves with like environmental environmentalism um, and so on, uh, much like um, many scams use social media to actually like exploit your own friends or your contacts, at least as the vector of disinformation. Right. They use celebrities and and causes mm-hmm. and so on. Um I think a lot of investors really didn't know that much aside from Tom Brady was doing it allegedly. And, you know, and and. And all these other, you know, people and their their friends, and they did not have the expertise, like you say, to it to, to to evaluate this. Um, there's something called the illusion of knowledge, which we actually wrote about in our previous book, but it's very important here as well, which is um, the belief that you understand something better than you really do. And there's actually, you know, scientific experiments in this where researchers will ask people things like, "How well do you think you understand how a toilet works?" 
And people mm-hmm. will, and like, they'll say like, rate on a scale of one to seven, how well you think you understand how a toilet works. And people might say, oh, I'll give myself a five or a six. And then you say, okay, can you explain how a toilet works? Like, how does, you know, why does the water go down and how does it fill up again? And people can't actually explain that unless they're yeah. a plumber, you know, <laughs> um, but, but they know how to use a toilet, you know, yeah. presumably. And that gives them sort of the illusion that they, they know how it works. So like, you might know how to like buy and sell stocks, but do you really know like how the stock market works? Do you, what, how much do you really know about it? Crypto sort of magnifies that, that whole situation, right? Um, you know, one thing that you guys did this, this video, and I don't want to say too much about it because I want listeners to check it out and s- I don't want to give too much away. In fact, it's kind of hard to talk about it, but on YouTube, <laughs> yes. it's called The Monkey Business Illusion. And I'll just say, watch it, follow the directions. And it's very illuminating <laughs> to how perceptive you think you are. And you are versus what you really see. I remember, I remember watching that video way back when it first came out and just being blown away. Um, I have a question about FOMO. Because I feel like that plays a lot into not only how deceptors work, but also as sort of a red flag. So, for example, a lot of times scams, there's a lot of act now, you know. You, you know, I remember once um, pre, you know, early in my, my life, uh, early in my professional life, I was called by an old friend. And I realized much later that it was part of a Ponzi scheme. But he was saying, like, he was trying to get me to invest in this thing. And I, and I was sort of saying I didn't want to and hedging and, and you know, I didn't have any money anyway. And he was, and he was like, John, you're being an idiot. Like, you know, this is, are you kidding me? Like, there's only, this is like a once in a lifetime example, uh, uh, opportunity. And I cannot believe you are saying no to this. And he was very pressured. And I was like very freaked out by it. But I, that idea that like, you got to act now, like this is only going to happen like once in your life. Scammers love to do that. And it, it, and there's a part of our cognitive bias, I think, that FOMO maybe that wants to, resp- you know, that doesn't want to miss out. Um, is that a legitimate thing? Uh, well, it's a legitimate feeling. Um, and I think as I, as I think about it, listening to you describe this this experience, um, you know, I it occurs to me that for right now, most people, well, at least many people in Western countries and, and uh, live in an environment of relative abundance. Most people can get enough food. They have shelter. They have, you know, phones that can do all kinds of things that nobody ever, you know, could do before in human history until like 10 years ago. There's not as much scarcity as there was, let's say, when the human species was was first getting going. Um, and we had to spend most of our time just getting the food for the day. Um, it was like most of our time, you know, and so on. And then we didn't necessarily know are we going to have it again tomorrow? We'd have to start the process all over and so on. Now you can get 500 calories in a Snickers bar for a dollar or something like that. So I think that, you know, we are to some extent adapted to, you know, the environment we evolved in where there was a lot of scarcity and grabbing things now might've been a really good, you know, thing because who knows if it's still going to be there tomorrow. Um, you know, and that's some, some people argue that one reason why we have sort of what economists would call a present bias um, that is to sort of consume things now as opposed to save them for later, um, is that there was sort of no certainty of savings, you know, in the distant past when our when our brains and minds evolved. Now, this maybe translates into things like fear of missing out, although there's also a social component there because, you know, you don't want to be the one person who doesn't have what all your friends have or what everybody else is doing, but especially the use of time pressure, as, as which, as you say, is a major feature of many scams and even of marketing nowadays, right? Sort of like, you know, Whenever I buy an airline ticket, amazingly, there are only two tickets left at that price. 
You know, like, yeah. why is that? Yeah. You know, well, that's because there's like 300 prices, you know, so they can legitimately say like, yes, there's only two at this price. Right. There, there might be two <laughs> at $1 more, you know, and two at one. Yeah, but yeah, anyway, right. like, but, it, the, the, but why do they all do that? Because probably because it works. Probably what they have done is they have run, you know, randomized experiments and found out that if we say only two more at this price, more people will actually book the flight. And Amazon says there's only seven copies left in stock. And, you know, it's a very common feature of marketing now, but where it really gets to be a problem is in massive time pressure situations. So um, one thing that time pressure does is it, it basically stops us from doing more checking, um, asking more questions, thinking about what's missing. Like that's very important is, is what it, what it, um, uh, what the time pressure does is it really concentrates us on, on the information that's right in front of us, which is often provided to us by the person who's trying to take advantage of us, or at least get us to do what they want us to do. And, you know, they, when you're going to buy a car, they don't want you to go back and read consumer reports and get the information on like how much the dealer paid for it and so on. They want you to make a decision like while you're, while you're there. Right. So I think one thing to keep in mind is that the cost of waiting is sort of never as high as anyone tells you it is like, you just have to like, keep that in mind. Like the cost, in fact, there might be a savings due to waiting because you might wind up not buying something that you didn't want, didn't need, or was an outright scam. So probably waiting saves money, right? In the long run, whereas they want you to believe waiting costs you money. So it's, it's probably exactly the opposite. And you can, you don't need to lose sleep over the fact that you passed on that crypto deal that someone DM'd you about, you know, the day, you know, (laughs) that afternoon or something like that, you know, that, that is, that is such great advice. It wasn't that recently, maybe like a year ago when I was going to uh, buy a car or lease a car. You're never going to believe this. I happened to walk in on the last day of this incredible <laughs> race they were offering. No. And I actually, I burst out laughing when the guy said it and he felt like such a moron. And I, I, it was just so funny. I was like, you're kidding me today. I just randomly showed up today. So I think that's awesome (laughs) advice. And then I did get a better deal because then a week later it's like, oh, you're still interested in that? We we do still, we have an even better rate, you know? Yeah. Play hard to get. Right. The old yeah. advice of playing hard to get, like, why not play hard to get with crypto? You know, like that's, right, right. you know, um, or, or well, honestly, I would have to say, like, like, like we said before, like, unless you really understand what you're doing, you don't need to invest in crypto. Or if you want to invest one percent of your, you know, of your assets, like, sure, you know, just to give yourself some skin in the game. So you follow this interesting new trend in human history, you know, like that's that's maybe fine, you know, but. But otherwise, you know, I, I love Amazon. Like I, I think Amazon is, is great in many ways. No, nobody's perfect. But um, I couldn't help but notice that on Prime Day, which is, of course, a big FOMO deal, time yeah. limited thing, our book happened to come out on Prime Day and it was selling for full price on Amazon. And then like a few days later after Prime Day, they cut it by like, you know, $8 or something like that, you know, so you can get a great deal now on Amazon on our book. But that's the same deal that's been there for like the last three weeks or four weeks or something like that. <laughs> on right. Prime Day, there was no, you know, so that that was not on sale, unfortunately. Well, I, I think that's a, a great segue to explain to people how they can, where, where can they look for your book? Because I think this information, I mean, it's fascinating and it's critical to sort of like retrain your brain a little bit uh, and definitely check out that monkey business video. But where, where can they buy this book? Where's the best place? Uh, well, really anywhere. So if there's an audio book, there's a ebook, Kindle, you know, all the other e-readers, there's um, 
the hardcover is available in Amazon, Barnes and Noble, every bookstore, your local independent bookstore. Um, you can get it wherever you you know would get any other book. Um, and I, yeah, I would say like check check out that video. And and w- one reason why that video of ours is relevant is it sort of gives you. It's based on an experiment we did over twenty years ago. Now um, it gives you the perception that there's a lot that might be going on that you don't necessarily notice. And that is one of the main things that, you know, scammers are also taking advantage of is sort of like a magician sort of counting on us, not looking like, and, and seeing things that, that they don't want us to see right at that, right at that moment. Although scammers in a little bit more abstract sense, magicians, it's very like up close and personal, right. And so on. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's quite relevant. And I, I think, um, you know, in the book, we don't just sort of go through these abstract concepts, but we also have many examples and we show sort of like how you can interpret Theranos, Bernie Madoff, you know, crypto scams, the, the old Nigerian prince email, a lot of these things, you know, in in this framework and really understand how they work and, and how that might help you make better decisions um, for yourself. Man, I, I hope that prince has finally found a way to get his money to America. I hope there's been one person who is open to... <laughs> Helping him out. Poor guy. The poor guy. I know. Who knew there was so much royalty in in, in West Africa and that they had all lost their money? You know, that's um, kind of surprising when you think about it. The book is called Nobody's Fool, Why We Get Taken In and What We Can Do About It. Christopher Shabrit, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you. It's been fun. I just I have one thought, though. How do we know you even wrote a book? I mean, you sent us a link to something. <laughs> Wait a minute. If we're How still we recording, know you're Christopher you answer. If we're not recording anymore, I'll give you a different. I'll give you a different answer. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's a good point. You did not verify my identity before we did this recording, um, yeah. so you'll just have to take my word for it, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, I could show you my driver's license, I suppose, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, later we're just, we're just going to have to, if you don't mind, we're just going to have to do a little uh, a verification. Yeah, your social after. security number, that'd be great. Yes, exactly. I'll yeah. send you my bank Thank details you. and, you know. Yeah, can, that'd be great. Uh, just just yeah. put it on Facebook. Everybody's scamming everybody in this call. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Chris, right. Chris, thank you for joining us. Dirty Money is a production of the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network. It is produced by Dan Bova and John Small with music by Rich Bova. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.